0: Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working-class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at ibt1917, and Instagram at bolsheviks.org. 1917. The following talk, entitled Cops and Capitalism, was originally delivered at an IBT online public meeting on 6 June 2021. This year is the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune. Commune is important because it was the first time in history that the working class took power as a class, ruling through mass working class democracy election of officials subject to immediate recall, and a worker's wage for government ministers. This was all backed up by the armed proletariat, which replaced the armed forces of the old state, and was now serving a different class and a different set of property relations. For Marx and Engels, the events that took place in Paris between March and May, 1871, confirmed something they'd been moving towards for quite some time. The lesson was, they said, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. The capitalist state has to be smashed and the working class needs to establish its own state power. The commune was confined to one city and lasted two months, but the same lesson was repeated on a much broader scale by the Russian Revolution of October, 1917. So Engels defined the state as a special public power consisting not merely of armed men, but also material adjuncts, prison, and institutions of coercion of all kinds. Lenin called it an instrument of exploitation of wage labor by capital. By this, they meant that the purpose of the coercion is to maintain the wealth and property of the ruling class to maintain the exploitation of the majority for the benefit of the few the police are the most visible example of this coercion of the state their function is to defend private property capitalist profits and all the supporting social and political structures of society on 25 may last year just over a year ago four policemen murdered George Floyd on the street in Minneapolis the event that provided a spark for the Black Lives Matter movement against racism and police violence despite the protests that erupted around the world we have seen little change since then black people in the U.S. and internationally all too often fear for their lives in any interactions they have with the cops and other repressive forces of the state. Approximately 1,000 people, disproportionately black, are killed by US police every year, a figure that has not changed significantly since the world watched in horror while Derek Chauvin held his knee on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. One in a thousand black men in America can expect to die at the hands of the police. So Chauvin and his collaborators are not some bad apples in a barrel of good cops. US capitalism is inherently racist and law enforcement is designed to serve and protect that system. It recruits or creates racist bullies and depraved psychopaths because that is what is required to maintain law and order in a society of grotesque disparities of wealth and power. A year ago, we wrote, statistically speaking, Chauvin's arrest was highly unlikely. His conviction is improbable. The capitalists love their killer cops. We call for jailing Chauvin and his accomplices for life, but we are under no illusions that the courts, another key branch of the repressive apparatus of the state, will grant even that modicum of justice. In fact, Chauvin was recently convicted although not yet sentenced. A very small victory that indicates the pressure the state was under. Given the social unrest that would have broken out in the event of a not guilty verdict, it had to sacrifice one of its own. Every cop is a foot soldier of the bourgeoisie. They are required by their masters to wield some power and are therefore not subject to the same laws as everyone else but ultimately any one individual is dispensable. At the very same time that the jury deliberated over Chauvin in Minneapolis, black teenager, Makia Bryant, was shot dead by police in Columbus. She was 15 years old. I could spend this whole talk listing more examples. In response to the Chauvin verdict, President Joe Joe Biden welcomed it and called it justice. He acknowledged the rarity of such an event. But the response of the Democrats to police murders is distinguishable from that of the Republicans, only by the occasional acknowledgement of racial inequality. Police killings under the Trump administration were at roughly the same level as they were under Obama. Biden even had the chutzpah to declare before the elections that African-Americans who chose not to vote for him ain't black. This same Joe Biden was a leading proponent of the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, signed by Bill Clinton. This notorious crime bill increased the mass incarceration of young black men that began a generation earlier and continues to this day. Racist violence is a feature of American capitalism and has been since the time of slavery. The police are the enforcers of that system, including those that are black, female, and or working class in origin. The Black Lives Matter protests in the US reverberated around the world, including in Britain, where racist cop murders evoke parallels with deaths in custody and street harassment that is disproportionately used against Blacks and other ethnic minorities. In 2011, riots broke out in several British cities after a Black man, Mark Duggan, was shot in his car by police in North London. The angry, multi-ethnic youth of London and other cities are no strangers to police violence. The numbers of police killings in Britain are much lower than in the US, but still the racial disparities are stark. Black people make up 3% of the population, but 8% of deaths in custody. British cops carry out around half a million instances every year of stop and search, in which they need only grounds for suspicion of a crime being committed to carry out the search. This number includes six stop and searches for every 1,000 white people and 54 per thousand black people. The government website where I found those figures says their policy is not to use phrases like, black people are nearly 10 times more likely to be subject to stop and search. I wonder why. So Black Lives Matter with its twin focus against racism and state violence intersects with many other areas of protest. In Oxford where I live, it joined forces with a campaign called Roads Must Fall, pushing for a statue of the imperialist mass murderer Cecil Rhodes to be removed from the wall of an Oxford University college on the high street. Now, the IBT doesn't believe that taking down the statues of all the criminals of history will fundamentally change the present. But we certainly did celebrate when protesters in Bristol dumped a statue of slave trader Edward Colston into the harbor. The reluctance of Oxford University to remove the statue of Rhodes draws parallels with racism at the university today. Black and ethnic minority students are vastly underrepresented. Recent research has shown how little the university pays some of its staff, cleaners for instance, many of whom are ethnic minorities. And on the outskirts of the city, Black and working class youth on the estates are subject to high levels of police harassment as they are across the country. So it's not surprising then that all these themes came together in protests against the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill which is due back in Parliament later this month. This legislation is a blatant attack on civil liberties designed, and I quote, to strengthen police powers to tackle non-violent protests that have a significant disruptive effect. It will criminalise protesters simply for being loud or posing a serious annoyance or inconvenience. It introduces a new criminal offence of trespass with the intent to reside, which will target traveller communities and the homeless it is certain that these new laws will predominantly be used against the left, the working class, and oppressed minorities, reflecting the role of British policing in preserving the capitalist social order. The IBT has been active in organising protests against this bill, which, under the slogan, Kill the Bill, have been supported by a coalition of anti-racist campaigners, environmentalists anti-fascists lgbtq activists supporters of palestine and other international campaigns and political organizations from the far left to the liberal democrats and within this disparate crowd we've been arguing that increased police powers mean increased capacity for capitalism to exploit and oppress the oppression does not come from the behaviour of individual police officers, but from the system they are sworn to protect. The policing of these demonstrations and many other demonstrations we have seen over the years only illustrates this point. First of all, community liaison officers are sent into the crowd wearing these baby blue bibs to initiate friendly conversations like, have you come far today? Did you come with your friends? The purpose of this is to gather information about individuals, particularly those seen as leaders. This information is then fed back to a chain of command that all too often ends with their colleagues in riot gear who have been waiting in their vans just around the corner attacking and arresting those who they perceive to be the troublesome or militant wing of the protests. Their objective is a tame demonstration that agrees with the police in advance where it can march and what it will do. The first advice any left-wing legal support organization will offer is don't talk to the cops. The police, like the authors of the PCSC bill, know that a protest that doesn't cause a serious annoyance or inconvenience is likely to be extremely ineffective. So the police are the first line of defense of the capitalist state. They're the representatives of capitalist force that we encounter when attempting to protest, to build a picket line, or simply to go about our daily lives. Yet there are many who suggest that the police can be reformed, that better laws can be made to prevent excesses, that if Derek Chauvin goes to jail, then progress is being made. The popular slogan, defund the police, sounds radical, but it's often used to mean not getting rid of them altogether, but to channel a small part of their funding to community projects and such like. All of this implies that Marx and Engels were wrong, and it is possible to simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery by the election of Socialists to Parliament and other government bodies and executive positions. History has shown otherwise. There are no examples of such reforms changing the fundamental nature of the state. There are also those who call themselves Marxist who create more confusion about the nature of the state by describing the police as workers in uniform. We see this in organizations that share a heritage in the British militant tendency, the IMT, who Socialist Appeal in Britain, Fight Back in Canada, the CWI, Committee for Workers International, and Socialist Alternative in the US, whose most famous member is Kashama Sawant in Seattle and various other splinters. So we recently wrote an open letter to the IMT about their contradictions on this question. During the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, They enthusiastically responded to the militancy on the ground. They said that defunding the police points towards the need to do away root and branch with an organisation that is rightly seen as inherently racist and violent, not to be trusted with defending citizens' lives and property. This is potentially a revolutionary conclusion. The police is a component part of the capitalist state Armed bodies of men and women in defence of private property. So far, so good. But reading their articles around this time, many would not be aware that the IMT's long-standing position is that cops and prison guards are part of the working class. Despite sometimes denying it, they have made this dangerous characterisation on a number of occasions. In 2008, for instance. Leading British member Rob Sewell compared a London police strike with another a century ago, offering advice on how the repressive forces of the state could improve their pay and conditions. In 1919, they were dubbed Bolshevik bobbies, he said. Today, they wanted to take a leaf out of the experience of their forefathers if they are to get anywhere. By get anywhere... I presume he means improve their ability to do their job, state repression. More recently, after the killing of George Floyd, the American section of the IMT rightly supported suggestions that the US COP union should be expelled from the AFL CIO, Trade Union Federation, but only as a tactical measure. They claim that the inclusion of police associations in organized labor could at times serve as, I quote, a potential point of pressure by the broader working class on the capitalist state apparatus. But now, apparently, things had changed. A tipping point had been reached. The class position of the police is not a tactical question. Nothing has changed in their repressive function. They should never be recognized as a legitimate part of the workers' movement we can only conclude that the IMT support for cop unions had just been temporarily set aside because it is unpopular with young activists whose eyes are opening to the truth. On the other side of this argument, are the Spartacist League and the internationalist group who denounce us for the slogan, jail killer cops. When longshore workers shut down the ports in the San Francisco Bay area, in 2010 over the racist murder of Oscar Grant, again by a cop. The internationalist group refused to endorse the accompanying rally because it raised this jail killer cop slogan. They claimed that those who make this call are propagating the bourgeois democratic myth that under pressure, the state can be made to serve the interests of the masses. Of course, It is true that jailing the killers of Oscar Grant or George Floyd does not fundamentally change the nature of the police or the capitalist state, as I noted earlier. But Derek Chauvin was convicted because he became a symbol of police racism to a militant movement on the streets. Small victories like this should be built on, not dismissed. Anger and outrage drives millions of people around the world into the streets to protest against injustice, from Black Lives Matter in the imperialist West to farmers in India or Palestinians in Gaza. But to succeed against the cops and other repressive forces of the state, this anger must be organized and focused. Simply fighting back against the police is not enough. I've just argued that it's important to understand the class nature of our enemies. It's even more important to understand the class nature of the movement we need to build. It must be based on the working class. One thing I encountered within the Kill the Bill protests here in Britain was a tendency to speak of class is just one among many forms of oppression. The working class is just one component of an alliance of the oppressed against injustice, but there is much, much more to it than that. Capitalism is fundamentally based on the exploitation of labor to provide profits for the owners of the means of production. This therefore gives the working class, regardless of race, nationality, or gender, a reason to destroy capitalism. But it also puts the working class in the position of being the force that is capable of destroying it. Exploitation of labor was not invented by capitalism, but as a feature of all class societies. In slave societies, the exploitation of labor was completely transparent and brutal. The producers themselves, the slaves, are the property of the ruling class. In feudal society, appropriation was also fairly obvious. Reinforced by religious belief and the church, class divisions are presented as the will of God. In all these societies, the state used brute force to defend a particular form of property relations. Capitalism is somewhat different. Producers, the working class, are supposedly free to enter into arrangements with the capitalists to exchange labour power for a wage. The capitalist exploits this labour indirectly by selling the product of labour at a value higher than the wage that they have paid. The fact that all value and therefore profit is derived from labour is obscured in this process and the common interests of the working class in opposing the system are further obscured through divide and conquer strategies of which division by race and nationality are the most pervasive. The state, again, the cops, courts, prisons, etc., maintains this exploitation by defending private property and the means of production. The violence is often not overt. It's not necessary because of of all the other mechanisms that are available to them. But like the riot cops waiting around the corner while the community liaison officers work the crowd, the threat of violence is always there. The multiracial working class is the only force that has the power to fight this. In the first instance, the power to bring production to a halt through strike action. Ultimately, to take over the organizing of production and of society in general, to build a new state with new bodies of armed men. The international working class today is far more powerful than that of Paris in 1871 or St. Petersburg in 1917. The existing trade unions, weak and bureaucratic as they are, at least represent the principle of workers organizing as a class. We need to build defense guards to prevent racist attacks and violence on the street against women and LGBTQ people. We need to defend strikes with picket lines that really mean don't cross. To do this, we need to overcome the divisions within the working class by defending the rights of all the oppressed against the police and other repressive forces of the state. So I want to end with a positive example. I mentioned earlier that the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, on the U.S. East Coast stopped work for Oscar Grant a decade ago. This militant union has a long tradition of political strikes. It did the same for black political prisoner, Mumia Abu Jamal, a decade before that in 1999. It carried out an 11-day boycott of a South African ship as part of the fight against apartheid in the 1980s. Again, last summer, an eight-hour shutdown of West Coast ports on Juneteenth demanded an end to systematic racism, police terror, and the privatisation of the Port of Oakland. Just two days ago, these same longshoremen refused to cross a community picket line in solidarity with Palestine, meaning that an Israeli ship left the port without being unloaded. These are small examples. Of how the power of the working class can be harnessed to fight for the interests of the oppressed. But these are only the beginnings. Such actions need to be repeated on a much broader scale. They also need to move beyond the arena of trade unionism to the building of a workers' party with a revolutionary programme. And the essence of a revolutionary programme is an understanding of the capitalist state of the armed bodies that support it, how it functions and maintains itself and what we need to do to destroy it. Thank you.